Well, before we begin, I just want to uh, kind of express my appreciation to Michael, to Bill, to everybody who's been engaged in some of the uh, behind-the-scenes electronics, graphics. We had a uh, furnace that was a little hyperactive, apparently, this morning here in the building. We have a camera who has apparently decided not to work with the projection software. We're just, uh, we're, you know, we're always tidy, ship-shape, everything just kind of working like clockwork around here. That's maybe a bit of an overstatement, but I will say we've got some good people helping us make sure that uh, things are working out. So to those of you at home, um, it's okay. You can't see me. I look exactly like I always do, sort of just average and unimpressive. But we have God's Word before us, and so I am grateful for a moment like this that is honestly a little perplexing by way of a passage. This one is structured in such a way uh, that we think of it kind of like a sandwich. Few people name their sandwiches by the bread, right? Generally, if I were to ask you, would you like a sandwich? You'd say, yes, we would assume the bread. Maybe we'd ask if you want it toasted or what kind you wanted, but that's not the name of the sandwich. The name of the sandwich is always what's there in the middle. And Mark has structured a sandwich-like passage for us here. It has some bread, a dialogue Jesus has with a fig tree. And then it has some other bread, kind of what happens to that fig tree. And that's not really the point. The point is what's in the middle. The point is what Jesus does when he comes into Jerusalem. Because the fig tree stuff is all kind of, that's for the disciples' ears only. What Jesus does when he makes his way into Jerusalem, if you haven't been with us for a while, we've been making our way through Mark. We just started into Mark 11, where we heard the triumphal entry and the uniqueness of who Jesus is as we're making our way into this last one week of Jesus' life, but essentially the last third of the book of Mark. So this is a significant week, more significant than any other week. Mark gives it more time, just like every other gospel author gives this week more time. But we started this week last week with the triumphal entry. As Jesus has made his way in, one thing that is perplexing to me um, is that Jesus seems to come unaware of the importance of making uh, the right first impression to the right people. Now, when I was a kid, we moved a lot. Um, I was, I think, by third grade in kind of our sixth home. And so that 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 pattern stopped by around that time. Um, but when I, I, I kind of got used to coming into a new school and needing to make a first impression. And so you would think that by, uh, I guess it was by fourth grade, I would have gotten this down. I would have figured it out how to come in. And I, but I, I had all the wrong criterion in place. Some of my early friends had uh, blonde hair. And so apparently, according to my folks, I would look for like, blonde-haired people in new schools because I figured, well, you know, if anybody's got blonde hair, they must be the kind of person I can relate to, just like David Soroka, one of my best friends when I was like four. And so I kind of learned that. That seemed to me a a first impression kind of thing, identify the blondes and then, you know, kind of. And so that's, you know, blonde-haired people are good, kind-hearted people. I just want to let that be known because... I made a comment about blonde-haired people a little while ago that, uh, you know, apparently Stephen Sandham and some of the others kind of took the wrong way. So I was, I just so you know, when I was a kid, I was all in favor of, you know, having blonde-haired friends. And 
that was, uh, that was one of my internal commitments. It was less effective than you might think. Um, but one of the other things that you would think would be like something I would have learned by then is how to enter into a group. Because if you ever saw Inside Out, you know, when you come into a new school, you know what happens. You get introduced, you stand up in front of people, and they ask you to say some things about yourself. So in fourth grade, that, that happened. I had, early, I had entered in. I was a new kid at Hosack Elementary School. And I stood up when I was introduced, said a couple things about myself, and then bowed. That really set the year for me really well, just so you know. It was like the worst way to make a first impression on a new group of people. It was like, oh, this kid's never been around others, has he? We've, we've, you know, our kids have taken their lumps for being homeschooled, and they enter into a, a group, and they find, it, you know, and they find out, hey, are you, you were homeschooled. It, it always sets them as a little bit of the butt of a joke and those sorts of things. And then, sorry for that, but you guys, you're doing okay. I wasn't homeschooled. I had been in groups for a really long time, and I still thought the best way to make the best first impression was to stand up, say, hi, I'm Darren. I've moved here from North Carolina. Good to meet you. I never lived it down. I, I was actually a relatively cool kid before that. I think that was the moment for me that set life on a, just a completely different trajectory. And you'd wonder if Jesus has the same kind of misconception or the, the wrong sense of how to make the right kind of people like you. Because if you were going into Jerusalem and you wanted to win over the powerful to your cause, you would not do what Jesus does. What Jesus does when entering into Jerusalem seems to our eyes to be a complete failure of how to win over the right people. But I think the more we go through the text, we realize Jesus probably sees things better than anybody else in Jerusalem really does. Jesus probably has a better sense of what's supposed to happen. But again, just so that we can kind of get the context for this, we start in in verse 11. This was the end of kind of our triumphal entry text. And it's the beginning of our temple cleansing text. And it's this little hinge right there in verse 11. He entered in Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus enters in makes his way to the temple, gets a look at what's happening, and takes off. And if the perception you have of the temple is kind of like the perception we used to have of the tabernacle, remember, like, the tabernacle could fit in this building. Not big, really, at all. It was important. It was significant. The temple functioned the same way, but it was not the size of this building. The temple court was acres big. It was... It was very impressive. And so when Jesus comes in and looks around at everything, there was a lot for him to look around at. Now, there would have been parts of the temple that Jesus had access to. After all, he was Jewish, so he could get into the Jewish-only parts of the temple. And he was a man, so he could get into the men-only parts of the temple. But he, he wasn't a priest. He couldn't get into some of those corners. But he was, he was granted as much access as a person like Jesus could have. But that also means that Jesus had to leave people behind as he was surveying the site of the temple. He had to make his way in through the court of the Gentiles and then leave the Gentiles behind when he crossed that barrier. 
And then he had to make his way through the court of women and have to leave the women behind when he made his way into the real heart of the temple for potentially what you would consider to be the real category of God's people, the Jewish men. Now, not the priests. He wasn't doing the work there. He wasn't a Zechariah or anything like that, but he was, he was significant. So he got to go where the significant people got to go to. Now, all this is on the heels of, remember, in what we're going to kind of find happens through all this, and this is just to let you see the whole structure and the sandwich of it all. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. That was 11, 1 to 10, right? 11, 11, he looks around for a little bit and then leaves. 11, 12 to 14, Jesus is coming from Bethany to Jerusalem and he's going to have this private conversation with a fig tree, which seems a little odd. We'll get to it. But he curses this tree while he's returning to the city. Jesus then, 11, 15 to 19, cleanses the temple and rebukes the leaders. And then the sort of second half of the bread. So if the first part of the bread is his first conversation with fig tree, if the middle of it, the most important part of the sandwich is what Jesus does at the temple and who he kind of goes to bat for and who he rebukes, then the latter part of the bread, the bottom part, or depending on how you're building your sandwiches, uh, probably the top part of the bread, is Jesus seeing this withered tree then instructs his disciples on faith and forgiveness. Now, speaking about this whole structure, Donald English, English, who, who wrote a pretty good little commentary, said this, the cursing of the fig tree is one of the more difficult stories in the gospel, actually the most, according to him, difficult stories in the gospel. It represents a destructive use of supernatural power, which is unique. The only time in the Gospels that Jesus' supernatural power is destroying something rather than creating life. It suggests that Jesus expects figs at a time which was not the season for figs and yet blamed the tree nevertheless. Then the verses which offer comment on the incident, the second piece of bread, are about faith and prayer and forgiveness, though if the curse of the fig tree was possibly about faith, it was less obviously about prayer and certainly not about forgiveness. So having that explanation, you kind of understand why English is saying this is uh, one of the more difficult, the most, in his words, difficult passage to understand in the gospel. And I, I think he's right And it's very possible that by the time we get done just kind of making our way through this narrative that all of your questions aren't going to be answered. I'm not sure all of mine are entirely answered, but that's not always the reason we come to the Bible, is it? Is to be able to master everything and make sure that we've got every unassailable reason for everything that was ever done because we, if we're rightly understanding it, we don't come to the Bible to master the Bible, but to be mastered by the Bible. We don't come to lord ourselves over and to evaluate what Jesus is doing. We, we come to sit under the authority of God's word. And that would mean that many times when the creator reveals himself to us, we both as the created and as the rebellious don't always get him. And this is a time for us to remember that we're reading a story about a perfect one. We're reading a story about someone unlike us. And just like I said last week, Our time in the Gospels are not meant for us to figure out how we're supposed to immediately improve ourselves. Those are derivative benefits. But the stories of the Gospel are the stories of Jesus, and we've come to admire first before we imitate. 
We've come to worship before we're to figure out how to be transformed. And so let's not miss just what is happening right here in front of us. And the first thing we're going to do is to follow along with one of Mark's interesting little uh, parts of the first two elements of the story is that Jesus does something in the fig tree and then he says this, the disciples heard. And then Jesus does something in the temple and Mark says, and the priests heard. We're just going to listen along with the disciples to what really happens here in the beginning. It starts in verse 12. On the following day, the day after the triumphal entry, when they, had come, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, well, that makes sense. Why would I expect figs? Because it's not fig season. But that's not what he says. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This is what's been called Jesus cursing the fig tree. And the point here is that the disciples heard Jesus curse the fig tree. It's not a big public thing. It is private, and it seems to be instructive, but it's unique enough that Mark just... ah, in his frustrating style, doesn't give us all the answers, but he certainly poses the oddities, and he draws attention to them. Because if you were to really try to get into the horticultural elements of the story, the season for figs is in a couple months. This is spring, and it's going to get to summer before you really would expect figs. But some fig trees did have little kind of buds of figs that were edible, And it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that there could be not the full figs, but the tiny figs. And if you lived in the area, you would have known that you could sometimes eat the buds of a fig, even though it wasn't as satisfying as a full fig. Is that true? Yeah. Why do I know that? Because I'm not a, you know, fig guy. But like I read it, so maybe that's it. Maybe that's helpful. Maybe that takes away a little bit of our sense that Jesus is kind of just angry like us because we've, we've all been there, you know? I don't normally, I'm sorry that you guys don't get to experience this at home. I don't normally preach in sneakers, but I'm wearing sneakers today. Now, if you're the kind of person who notices these sorts of things, I'm not telling you something new. You were sitting there thinking, hmm, the outfit today, you went a little more cash, Darren. I am. I am. I'm I'm rolling a little bit more casual today. Let me just tell you why. It's because everybody, I think, has had this moment where something seems reasonable a tenth of a second before you do it. And then a tenth of a second after you do it, you realize how absolutely stupid the idea was. I had one of those moments this last week. I was uh, putting trash into the trash can, and I was kind of angry about stuff. Life just, I was just, you know, sort of ruminating on things that hadn't worked out my way. And I was just kind of like angry inside. And so when the trash can did nothing but obey the laws of gravity and drop the lid on my head, I was really angry because I was sort of stewing, but it was like the heat went from, you know, simmer to boil, like really fast. And at that moment, I thought, you know what would be really smart right now, since I'm wearing boots, is to show this trash can how I feel. I'm so angry at you, trash can. And so for a tenth of a second before I did it, what seemed like a good idea was to reel back and kick the trash can with my big boots. And a tenth of a second after I did it, I realized just how foolish that was. I think I'm losing a toenail in the process as we talk. 
But I have been walking around like a gimpy old guy because this toe, I, I, you know, I considered for a second putting that slide up and nobody in Landerdom who's seen this toe would have said that's a good idea, Dad. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. We'll hide it in the email somewhere. There we go. There will be a hidden link in the email that if you're really the kind of person who wants to see a bloody toe... All right, good for you. Uh, it was really dumb. And I was just angry. And I was, I was sort of like angry at life-ish stuff. And I was angry that, uh, that an inanimate object dropped its you know, lid on my head because the laws of gravity just work that way and I hadn't lifted the lid. Like, that's not what's happening with Jesus. This is just one of those moments where I'm like, I'd love to be able to relate to Jesus and go, oh, he just gets angry like me. Oh, he stubs his toe in bloody ways because he just does dumb stuff sometimes. That's not Mark's point. So, by the way, Jesus had a temper too. Because if we view Jesus as though he's got a temper toward the tree, then I think we view that Jesus has a temper towards the priests and a temper towards the temple and a temple, a temper. Mm. We just invented a new tongue twister, I think, right there. There's something so much deeper going on, so much more instructive, so much more disciple-making going on in this moment. It has to do with, just like most stuff in the Gospels, understanding the the kind of the literary context of what's been happening in the prophets before this. Hosea 9, we read this. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. This is God speaking. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. What's Hosea's point? What's God's point through Hosea? My people have become worthless because of their idolatry. That's the broad point. What's his sort of artistic way of saying it? Guys, I was nurturing you like a fig tree. I found you so early, and then I came, and I, I, I like, a, like a good gardener, I took care of you, and you produced nothing. This isn't the only time that God speaks of himself as a gardener and his people as the one he's tending. It's, it's one of the more on-the-nose moments, though. And it seems to be kind of what's informing some of what Jesus is doing. This isn't him kicking a trash can. It's not him cursing a tree because Jesus just says, I'm so angry. That's Darren, not Jesus. Jesus is instead, like Michael Card says, and Mark is kind of giving us these, now he uses bookends analogies instead of a sandwich. But he says these bookends that tell the story of the green and fruitless fig tree provide the context for understanding Jesus' prophetic actions in the temple. Jesus sees the entire world around him as a parable. And when on the way to the temple, he sees a green tree, even his hunger becomes part 
of that parable. In Hosea 9, it is God who hungers for the early fruits of his people, Israel. But the people become unfaithful and worship Baal, knowing that a confrontation awaits him in the temple. Because remember, Jesus has been there. He's at the night to plan out what he's going to do. And this fig tree represents something for the disciples. So knowing that a confrontation awaits him in the temple, Jesus speaks to the tree in a prophetic curse. And what happens to the tree has already taken place in the temple. The presence of the marketplace demonstrates it. This is the first scene. First scene is on the way. Jesus curses this tree. It's not because he's angry. It's because he's, he's, he's illustratively instructing his disciples. And as he's making these disciples, then they, verse 15, come into Jerusalem. It says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This next scene is going to end with the priests hearing what's going on. And remember the scope of what we're talking about. It had been written that around this time, over 250 lambs would be slaughtered at a feast like the one Jesus is arriving for. You see, everybody's coming. This isn't just Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Everybody's coming to Jerusalem because it's the Passover. This is the feast. This is going home to grandma's house for Christmas. It's what everybody kind of wants to do. This is one of the pilgrimages. And so they're on their way. And in that moment, everybody needs a sacrifice. The scope of slaughter is really tough for us to imagine. Flocks will be killed over this feast. But they didn't set it up in the court of men. They didn't set it up in the space that it would only be reserved for the Jews. They set this up in the zone of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. Do we have the picture, Michael? All right, check this out. So what you're seeing is essentially a good amount, this is somebody's representation, right? But Herod having built out this grand temple, being kind of a Jew himself, sort of he was a a mud of a Jew, he was a half Jew, and he sort of, for Rome, was represented by the non-Jewish part of him, But because he had jurisdiction over Jerusalem, he liked to really highlight the Jewish part of him. And so he's created what he knew the people wanted. Separation in worship. Ranking of those in God's kingdom. Herod not only sort of understood that that was part of the psyche, he knew it needed to be part of the structure of the temple. And so certainly the priests needed to be set apart. That was part of God's design. But to set apart the foreigners, to set apart the women, that wasn't part of God's design. It was Herod obeying the laws of the day, though. And it wasn't as though fences were just enough. It wasn't as though barriers were just enough. 
what seemed to be significant, to Jesus at least, is that in the court of the Gentiles, business was being done that got in the way of worship. Business was being done in such a way that said, you're here, but you're here is like decoration. We're the important thing. And so we're going to desecrate your space by selling not just the 250,000 lambs who need to be slaughtered over this time, but all the lesser sacrifices as well. Because not everybody could always afford a lamb. There was provision made for the poor. And so if you remember all the way back early in Jesus' story, the sacrifice for Jesus' birth that would cleanse Mary from the the impurity and the blood of childbirth, the process of coming back into God's presence, it it could have had a more significant animal, animal, but they could just afford birds. And so he he was sort of welcomed into the world with a bird sacrifice. That's been Jesus' roots. It's been his upbringing. He's never had a place. He's never had property. He's never had wealth or significance. Jesus is always identified with the poor. Jesus is always identified with the outcasts. In fact, if you've been listening through the first 10 chapters of Mark, you know Jesus spent practically no time in Jerusalem. He's all out there. He's all dealing. And the people he has commended are often the foreigners. In other words, Jesus' entire ministry outside of Jerusalem has been to applaud and affirm those being put down in Jerusalem. More than just the selling of lambs and more than just the selling of insignificant animals has also come the fact that most people have got the wrong coinage. The Old Testament laws for the way that silver ought to be counted out and things like shekels and stuff like that, they weren't really being lived out when the days when Rome was in charge, but there was one type of coin that was most close. Now, it wasn't the Jewish coin. It had Roman insignias on it. But all of that sort of money collecting, the interchanging, the money changers, That was all happening in the court of the Gentiles too. So if you were an outcast, if you were one of those who fit into the category of the Old Testament that that Olivia was reading to us from, where God is saying, I'm going to gather in all the folks who might feel excluded. Everybody would feel unimportant. I'm going to bring them in and welcome them in. Jesus, who penned those words through Isaiah, enters in and starts to clean house based on the assessment he did last night. Jesus comes in and overturns the tables and the seats of those who were selling the pigeons. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching. This is why I say this is not just uh, Jesus being angry. Because trust me, when I was kicking a trash can, you did not want to come and have me instruct you on anything from the Bible. It was not a moment where you would have looked and said, hmm, this is a respected leader in the church. This is the kind of person who ought to be behind a pulpit. I just looked dumb and impulsive and then gimpy. Jesus 
Jesus is doing this in such a way that his teaching makes sense. Verse 17, he's teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? Where? Isaiah 56. Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. Isaiah 56, the foreigners who join themselves to me, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Why? Because the Lord God gathers outcasts, and the priests grind them down into the pavement. The priests called to represent God could not be further from God's heart at this moment. This isn't the only text. Jeremiah 7, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after the gods that you have known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes. You see the significance of the phrase Jesus grabbed? He wasn't just talking about how we handle the offering in this building. That's not the main point of what Jesus is talking about. He's using a phrase that's saying, the way you are treating the poor is equal in the eyes of God with stealing, murdering, adultery, swearing falsely, and making offerings to Baal, going after other gods you haven't known, and then coming to me and saying, (laughs) how good it is to be saved. Jesus takes that Old Testament idea, that blasphemous style of living, and saying, that is happening in my house. My house, my name over this house, my name over this house, which ought to be a house marked by accessibility for all outcasts to come to me and pray. And you know why they can't? Because they can't find a lick of real estate in all the acreage because you've got it taken up with your temple trading. You've got it all just, all the pigeons you're making money off of, all the interest that you're charging is you're exchanging this money for that money. It's leaving these people with nowhere to pray. This place meant to be an exalted house of prayer. It's become a cave of thievery, a den of robbers. And I, the Son of God, feel exactly the same way as what you heard from the lips of Jeremiah. When God said the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, he's here now, and he is indicting the way you are living now. That's the meat of this sandwich. Those are the books to use uh, Michael Card's language between the bookends. You're green fruitless. You're busy. But give no sustenance and no life. Jesus didn't just curse the tree and cleanse the temple. 
it might be just simple to say he cursed this tree of a temple because it was already fruitless. And he came to bring change and to bring reform. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it. Mark's second time. Disciples heard what happened to the tree. The priests hear what happens to this tree. And they are now seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at this kind of a teacher. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is about Jesus. Let's not forget. But if we are humbly reading this story, if we are not sitting over this text to master it, but to be mastered by the one who is being revealed in this text, we have to ask some questions about ourselves, don't we? Why are we so quick to be like the disciples who always wanted to figure out who was the greatest? Why do we, in big ways and subtle ways, rank ourselves? If we were to grade our church and somebody asked you, what would you use to grade Trinity? You might have different categories you'd say. Oh, we get an A in this or that, or we had a camping trip. We got an A plus on that camping trip. That's the kind of thing that we do. What if this was the criterion? What if this was the only criteria? How well do people who don't feel like they could belong in God's kingdom feel like they fit at Trinity? What if that was the question that we asked? What grade would we get? How would we do? J.C. Ryle asks, let us remember these verses whenever we go into the house of God. Let us call to mind where we are and whose presence we are engaged. Let us beware of giving God a mere formal service while our hearts are full of the world's activities. The Lord who casts out buyers and sellers from the temple still lives today. And when he sees such conduct, he is much displeased. If this is Jesus, and if Jesus never changes, then let's take some time this next week and just ask the question, what do we do to prep ourselves for this moment that we come? Michael hit me with a question. I've posed it to you guys before, and I think it's, it's worth bringing up again. How do we treat prayer when we're gathered together? Michael's, Michael's observation. And I'm just grateful for the way he took stuff he's been learning in seminary and then came and asked a question of us is sometimes it feels like we use prayer just to get us to move about. Use prayer at the end of a sermon so the worship team can get back up on the stage. We use prayer as a time when somebody else is doing something and maybe that's when I'll just, you know, kind of do a little bit, be a little bit busy. And I got to admit, I, I did it today. Ryan was praying for us and I went back to ask Mike a question. And while I was doing it, I realized I was going to have to confess it because it's just so part of the way that we vibe a little bit. And Jesus says that one of the things that ought to mark out a place of worship is that this is a house of prayer and that we've made prayer accessible and we've not given people the sense that you can't fit here because you're not important enough. Well, that's, that's not the grade we'd want to be handing or we'd want to be receiving. Let's continue to ask 
what is it that God wants us to learn? But the good thing is, we don't have to guess too hard at what Jesus wants us to learn coming out of this because we have the last piece of bread. We have the first piece of bread, the cursing of the fig tree. We have what happens there at the temple. And then they leave, verse 19. And it says in verse 20 then, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, and this is where it gets so interesting, because you would think Jesus might have the dialogue that Jesus is going to have later on. In a couple chapters, he's going to talk about the temple. In a couple chapters, he's going to talk about the fate of Israel and whether or not their national psyche ought to revolve around what happens on top of a mountain. He's going to have that conversation with them. And I would think if I was Mark and I was structuring it, it's like, Mark, put that right here, man. Just move things around a little bit. Put that right here because that fits so perfectly right after you've done this. And that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't go to instruction on 70 AD and the implications of, of prophecy and everything. He instead says, have faith in God. And this is... According to Donald English, you remember, this is part of what makes this passage kind of hard to understand as one united front. Because we hear what the disciples heard, we hear what the scribes heard, what the priests heard, but now we've just got to ask ourselves the question, do we hear Jesus call and do we hear him calling us to trust God? Because that's essentially his gut first response. They look and they say, wow, it's withered. Jesus says, God's someone you can trust. So you should have faith in him. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we hearing Jesus' call to trust God? And I think there's three things about God that he's going to kind of drive home for, for us by way of just questions. The first is, do we hear Jesus' call to trust God, a God who reroutes our confidence? Because we have to understand how significant this moment is. We're reading it, seeing the structure. The disciples are living it, and they're getting it. Jesus comes in, walks around, seems to say nothing, and leaves. Walks in, curses the fig tree, curses the temple. Fig tree is ruined. So what's the next question for the disciples? Whoa, 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 whoa. You're the one who told us we were going to find a donkey. We found a donkey. You were the one who told us that when we found a donkey, someone was going to ask a question, and they asked that exact same question. You're the one who could sit on a donkey that's never been ridden before, and everything was gentle and peaceful and the fulfillment of prophecy, and now you've just prophesied that a tree was going to wither, and it just did, and it seems like that's about the temple. Whoa! You are messing with my whole world, God. Jesus, if you are really going to uproot the temple the way it seems like you're going to uproot the temple, then what's that going to mean for me? Jesus says, well, let's ask this question first. Can you trust me? Can you trust me if I'm going to ask you to put your confidence in something other than those things that you thought were always supposed to be your confidence? Can you trust me if you're not going to raise kids who get because you did everything right to turn out exactly the way you want, parents, can you trust a God who doesn't promise that all your kids are going to turn out exactly the way you want? 
Because I think way too often in parenting, we get our feet sort of settled on that rock. The rock of prosperity parenting, right? Do all the right stuff and you will prosper as parents. Your children will prosper if you do this, right? We get to hear Brad and Sue talking about 50 years of marriage and we're like, that'll be me! And then one of them deviates slightly from your plan. I'm not talking about anybody specific. And we're like, what's going on? Or maybe it's not parenting. Maybe you just, you've been a faithful employee, and so you have been putting your feet on the prosperity gospel of promotion because all you had to do is serve and do all the right stuff. All you got to do is take all the right classes and make sure everything works out the right way, and then your life will go according to your dreams. And God comes to us and says, would you trust me if I was willing to mess with your plans and your system and what you put all your confidence in? Because that's what's happening to disciples. You're saying the temple's really not going to be the place where I can be assured I'm okay with God anymore? Well, if all that was true, would you trust me? First question. Did we hear Jesus call that we would trust the God who's going to move our confidence off of the stuff that we potentially have put too much confidence in? Second question, do we hear Jesus call us to trust God who removes our mountains? Because this is what he says next. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and just so we're clear on the geography, there, Mount of Olives, Valley, Mount of Jerusalem. They're probably on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is saying, this mountain you're on, this significant prophetic mountain, this mountain people get buried on so that when the resurrection happens, they think they'll be first to be able to be raised because that's where the Messiah's foot is going to come down and touch that mountain, this mountain. If you trusted me, then whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And if you're a fan of VeggieTales, you hear Larry the Cucumber saying, great, because I want to be a chicken. I've always wanted to be a chicken, so I'm going to ask God to be a chicken. And you realize, Larry, that's not what God means. But if you listen to a lot of teaching today, it sure sounds like that's what God means. It seems like what God means is that we can take this passage, ignore a ton of other passages, and then we can say, I'll never get sick, and I'll never be poor, and I'll never be sad, and I'll always feel like some relative of the king, a daughter of the king, a a son of the king. I'll be a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. A prince or a princess who never gets sick. A prince or a princess who never feels lonely. A prince or a princess who never gets fired, never suffers, never struggles. It'll never happen because I asked and the only thing holding me back is that if I believe. I so wish I could tell you that. I so wish I could. And I get why some do. And I think there is a sense that God has things he wants for us to ask. Not turning cucumbers into chickens, but maturing churches. 
and tempering the faith of those who trust him. And walking through struggles and being able to come out the other end like Job, who having lost everything, didn't sin against God. I think sometimes we suffer so much and we forget this promise. And so I'm just saying, you've never heard kind of prosperity preaching from this pulpit, but I am going to preach the prosperity and a prosperity in persevering that I think this passage does call us to. We are called to ask in prayer, which means you use words Plug for momentum. Come join us afterwards, not just for ramen, but because we're going to be talking about prayer. All right. And if, amen to that, and not just the ramen. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it, and it'll be yours. And I think there are young men battling with a mountain of lust who've stopped asking because it seems so big. I think there are believers dealing with mountain ranges of anxiety who have no concept of how to deal with our grief because we figure I have to fix my anxieties. That way I can get past this court of the doubters and I have to fix my sins so that I can get past the court of the sinners and I can pass those barriers and get into the temple where God actually hears us because there's no way he wants to hear about my anxieties and there's no way he wants to hear about my sins except for every book of the New Testament says bring your anxieties and confess your sins. That qualifies you to be in the temple and in the presence of God. And we've got these mountains in our lives. And we just stopped asking because it just seemed so big. And Jesus says, I just don't want you stuck on this mountain. I don't want you living in the valley. You want the mountain moved? Talk to the God who removes mountains. That's it. Question is, are we asking? There's one command. Ask, rest his promises, speak, ask, say to the mountain, ask in prayer. There's the phrase. I think they're pretty parallel. And so if we're not asking, I think we can answer this question. Do we hear Jesus call us to trust in the God who removes our mountains? We'd have to answer, no, we don't hear that call. And I just want to be a faithful preacher to say that God is calling you to do that. If you feel like you're living in a valley of something that's been looming over your life for so long and you just feel like this is where you're going to be stuck, this is where you're going to live the rest of your life, and this is where you're going to die, you don't have to. I don't know what the rest of it looks like. This isn't prosperity preaching. This is prosperity to persevere. And Jesus says, ask. So the first question is, do you hear Jesus calling you to ask as an expression of what it means to have faith in God? We're called to trust a God who reorients our confidence, who removes our mountains, and lastly, who releases 
all indebtedness. I like the passages that we talk about and that we sing about where we remember that grace is free because that's what grace is. That mercy comes to those who ask for it and that God forgives not those who have earned it, but those who receive it. I like those texts. And this is a text too. And whenever you stand praying, verse 25, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. These are the tough texts to put alongside what it means to freely receive grace from God. And it says this, if you're not forgiving those who have something against you, if you are standing and praying before the God that you expect forgives you, and you have not so drenched yourself in his forgiveness that like a sponge, when you get around somebody else, forgiving just kind of leaks out of you. What Jesus is saying is you might not have spent as much time in the water as you really thought. It might be that forgiveness hasn't just saturated your psyche because if forgiveness saturates your psyche, what happens is that you forgive others. That's the cart of God's grace coming after or sorry, that's the horse of God's grace coming before the cart of our forgiving, right? But this text is like some of those time travel movies you've ever seen. I remember seeing Terminator, which is not like, go see Terminator. I'm not saying that from the pulpit. I watched this when I was a kid. But in the Terminator movie, a guy goes back in time to rescue someone He's sent back in time by his commander, but as he goes back in time, it turns out that he meets his commander's mom and becomes his dad. How does that work? If he had never sent him back in time, would the commander have been born in the first place if he hadn't sent his father back to become his father beforehand? It makes no sense to me. But somehow to God, he can preach a passage like this. And say, I get the psyche of the New Testament is that God forgives so that we can forgive. And then, as a God who is outside of time, he can say, you forgive so that your Father can forgive you. And this messes with my sense of things. It does. We don't earn God's forgiveness, and Jesus isn't teaching that we do. But I think he's talking about forgiveness in such a way that he can say as one outside of time, forgiveness is a holistic concept. Very much the way we think about persevering in the faith. Does God choose us so that we choose him? Absolutely he does. Is my choice real? Absolutely it is. And does his effective choice mean that I make an effective choice so that I keep choosing all the way to the end? Absolutely it does. Is his choice important? Yes. Is my choice important? Yes. Is he the chief cause of all of it? Absolutely. And does my choice matter? Absolutely. How does that make sense to those of us in time? It doesn't, but we trust the one who's outside of time to see it that way. And I think he looks at forgiveness so much the same way. He says, if you've been forgiven, you'll forgive. But so vital is the connection that he can, at this moment, reverse the order and say, you forgive others 
so that God forgives you. I told you Mark isn't going to answer every one of our questions, and this is one of those moments that feels a little bit like I watch Tenet and I come out and think, what was that all about? I think about time travel and I'm like, I'm not sure exactly how I get that. And I come to forgiveness in this passage and I'm not sure I entirely get how all of it works. But we hear this call from Jesus in the middle of something Mark doesn't fully weigh out entirely. Is so that supposed to be so that I'm reversing the horse and the cart? I don't know. It kind of seems like he's saying it that way. But the main call is this. Do we hear Jesus call us to trust the God who reorients our confidence? Yeah, we do. Do we hear him asking us to trust the God who removes mountains? Yeah, we do. And do we hear him calling us to trust the God who releases all indebtedness, both those against us and ours against God? Yeah, we do. If nothing else, it means this. Bitterness and unforgiveness have no place in those who trust God. There's no place in a community that trusts God. And if we don't think an unforgiving spirit is part of what was setting up the whole temple structure in the first place, I think we're just largely ignorant. Because we justify our ranking people based on their offenses against us. And maybe we don't come and say, oh, we take the people who dress all the right ways and we we give them the front seats. Not that anybody really wants the front seats, but you know what I mean. Maybe that's not exactly our way of doing it, but we sure rank people off of their offenses, don't we? They are lesser because of what they did. And I may forgive, but I'll never like them. I'll never forget. Jesus said, that's not the way I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith that I can reorient everything you thought made you good before God. And every mountain that seems to cause a problem, I want you to remember that I can remove it. And I want you to remember that I'm the one who releases all indebtedness. And he says, you should be thinking about this when you pray. When you stand praying, if anybody has anything against you, forgive them. Because that's the way forgiveness works. Like I said at the beginning, this is a tough text for us to kind of make our way through. Mark's okay unsettling us because, frankly, even though I knew what I was going to say, I come to the end of saying it, and I feel a little unsettled myself. This is a good spot for God to be, because at the end of the day, Jesus isn't saying, I want you to trust yourself. He's saying, actually, I want you to empty yourself of everything you were relying on about what you brought to the table, and I want you to have faith in God. So let's pray to that end. Father, a moment like this where we evaluate our sort of mini temple, our our group, our community, but we're also evaluated by you as one of your disciples. But there's there's a lot of ways that our minds can go, but we return back to what we remember about the Gospels, which is that you are the one who's on display. Jesus Christ is on display. And we worship him 
And we submit to him as the only voice that evaluates us, the only voice today who moves among the lampstands, evaluating the churches and making the only pronouncements over us that matter. And so as a group and as individuals, we ask that you would see us. That you would search us, O God, that you would see if there be any anxious, unbelieving, thieving, adulterous and idolatrous ways inside of us. That you would correct us and then lead us in the paths everlasting. Lord, if bitterness and unforgiveness have taken root in our hearts, I pray that as we stand, we would forgive. As we rejoice over your forgiveness, we would trust you for what it costs us to forgive others. We pray, Lord, if we've been putting our confidence in ourselves for far too long, then whether we've been great parents, poor parents, great employees or poor employees, great friends, great students, or poor in every category, Lord, great disciples and followers of you, or if we have really tailed off, I pray that we would come back to trusting you once again. And for those stuck in the shadow of sin and anxiety, grief, despair, Lord, I pray that we'd feel the sun for the first time in a while, that you'd move those mountains. Let us see your face once again. But Lord, let this not be the only time we're asking for it because you've told us to ask, to trust you, and to speak. And so I pray that we do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Worship team's gonna lead us in some songs. Feel free to take time to stand and join us. If there's something coming out of this you wanna reflect on, you wanna pray on, feel absolute freedom. Stay in your seats a little while. And just to spend some time with the Lord before you stand and join us. But they're going to start to lead us now.